exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Have you ever wondered why Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know I have. I remember when I became a Christian and I read the story of the cross for the first time and I heard Jesus shout those words and I felt uneasy in my stomach because I was like, that's not how you're supposed to pray. And that's especially not how Jesus is supposed to pray. Like, can can you imagine if you came to, to prayer meeting on Wednesday night and we all sat down to pray and then someone got up and they said, dear God, why have you given up on me? Like at that moment, we might pause prayer meeting and say, okay, somebody needs some counseling. Somebody needs some help. Let's, let's take you over here. Let's, let's stop this. We, we'd probably interrupt their prayer and be like, that, that's not the right way to pray. Because to us, a prayer like that feels inappropriate and even irreverent. Because it sounds like they're not trusting in God. It may even sound like they're accusing God of not being faithful. But then, of course, we come back to Jesus who we know never sinned. Yet he still cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did Jesus fail to trust God on the cross? Did Jesus accuse the Father of being unfaithful at the cross? And the answer is absolutely not. Of course not. But the reason that Jesus' prayer feels so scandalous to us is because we as a people have lost what it means to lament. In the Bible, there are a lot of different ways to pray to God. For instance, there are prayers of confession where you confess your sins before God. There are prayers of adoration where you adore God for who he is. There are prayers of thanksgiving where we thank God for what he has done. And prayers of supplication where we ask God to supply us our needs. But of all the prayers we find in the Bible, the prayers we pray the least in the modern American church are the prayers of lament. To lament literally means to cry or wail or to weep. Prayers of lament are prayers of deep sorrow and pain. And not only is there an entire book of the Bible filled with laments, the book of Lamentations, but you may be surprised to find that a third of the Psalms are actually prayers of lament. A third of the Psalms are divinely inspired prayers and songs where the psalmist brings his sorrow to God in brutally honest ways, in ways that make us blush and get embarrassed. Like when I read the psalms, sometimes this is what goes through my mind. Is this really the right way to talk to God? I mean, doesn't the Bible command us to do everything without grumbling or complaining? Because it seems like the psalmist is, is doing a whole lot of complaining. And I will say, the Bible does command that. But what I've come to realize is that to lament is not the same thing as complaining. To lament is not grumbling. To lament is to honestly cry out to God in pain, knowing that he is the only one who can actually do something about it. Let me ask you something. Who taught you how to cry? Like, was it your mom, your dad, your brother, your great aunt's third cousin? Like, of course not. Nobody taught you how to cry because crying comes naturally. I bet nobody in here remembers the first time they even cried because the first moment when we leave the safety of our mother's womb, we come into this world crying. 
every human life that comes into this world has the same beginning. Our lives begin with tears because to cry is one of the most natural human behaviors human beings can practice. But lament is not natural for us. To cry is natural, but we have to learn how to lament. When we come into this world, our cries are often sinful and self-centered. When we come into this world, we come with one concern, me, myself, and I. But when someone cries out in lament, it's completely different. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with these two truths. I am in pain and God is in control. Only someone who believes both that God is good and that God is in control can go to God in lament. Only someone who believes in God's perfect righteousness and his absolute sovereignty can lament. Because if God is not good, what right have you to go to him with your sorrows? It's not his fault. You shouldn't expect your life to be good because God's not good. And if God is not in control, then once again, why should you go to him? Because he can't do anything about it. He's ultimately not the one in charge. But lament happens when someone has been promised that God is both all powerful and all good, yet the world feels out of control and anything but good. Uh, this, mini, this mini series that we're going to do for the next three weeks on lament is based on this little book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Discovering the Grace of Lament. It's written by a pastor named Mark Vrogrop, and we're going to have copies in the library very soon. Um, let, let, me, let me tell you how Mark Vrogrop defines lament. He says it this way. Lament is how we bring our sorrows to God. Lament is how Christians grieve. Lament is a prayer rooted in what we believe. It is a prayer loaded with theology. Christians affirm that the world is broken. God is powerful and he will be faithful. Therefore, lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Lament can be defined as a loud cry, a howl, a passionate expression of grief. However, in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It is more than walking through the stages of grief. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Throughout the scriptures, lament gives voice to the strong emotions that believers feel because of suffering. It wrestles with the struggles that surface. Lament typically asks at least two questions. Number one, where are you, God? Number two, if you love me, why is this happening? You might think lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, lament is a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. The space between brokenness and God's mercy is where this song is sung. Think of lament as the transition between pain and promise. It is the path from heartbreak to hope. End quote. So how do we walk that path from heartbreak to hope? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because if you have your Bibles, please turn with me now to Psalm chapter 13. If you're using a, a pew Bible, Psalm 13 is on page 534. And as you're turning, let me tell you that, that as your pastor, I have seen a clear difference between those of you who know how to lament and those who do not. Look, like I love you, church, and it's because I love you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a hard truth right now. Many of you do not handle trials as well as you think you do. I've seen many of you push aside your pain and grit your teeth and put on a happy face when you are going through trials. I, it's in an honest attempt to be faithful because as Christians, we're supposed to be joyful, right? 
Like we're, we're supposed to have the joy of the Lord. So you put on a happy face, you put away your struggles. But listen to me, there is a big difference between pushing aside your pain and honestly bringing it to the Lord. We believe the lie that because we are called to be joyful in the Lord, that if we are not happy all the time, then we're being disobedient. But let me tell you something, church, right now. Let me give you a permission that you need. It is okay to not be okay. It is okay to be sad as a believer in Jesus. And through the grace of lament, we can find the right words to, our, to express our sorrow to God in a godly, God-glorifying way. And that's my prayer for us this morning, is that we as a church would learn the language of lament so that we could honestly and biblically bring our sorrows to God. Because in Psalm 13, we're going to find three steps on the path from heartbreak to hope. The first step on that path in verses 1 to 2 is this. Honestly bring your sorrows to God. The second step on that path in verses 3 to 4 is this. Confidently bring your requests to God. And the last step in verses 5 through 6 is to faithfully bring your praises to God. Honestly bring your sorrows, confidently bring your requests, and faithfully bring your praises. So before we take those three steps, let's pray. Lord, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. And as we study your word, as I preach by the power of your spirit, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is delivered. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look at me to verses one to two. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Stop there. Once again, imagine that you're here on a Wednesday night and a fellow believer prayed verses one to two. And like assuming you didn't know that they were quoting scripture, like what would you think of them? You might think that they had lost all hope. And if you heard an Israelite like David praying verses 1 to 2, you might have even think that they had lost their faith. Because the Israelites knew that the greatest blessing any man could experience was for the face of God to shine upon them. And they also knew that the greatest curse any man could experience was for God to turn his face away. Now, if you grew up in a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church, or basically any other church besides a Baptist church, you probably heard these words hundreds of times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. When all of Israel was gathered around the temple for some feast or festival, it was the job of the high priest to lift up his hands and to bless the people with these words of blessing. Because it was at the temple in Jerusalem where the presence of the living God was pleased to dwell that the Israelites could bask in the presence of God, in the light of his face. And the Israelites knew that the greatest blessing in the universe was not health or wealth, but to be bathed in the glory of the light of Yahweh's face. And that's why every time I'm in a church and a service ends with those words, and I hear those words from Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. 
I get chills. Because my greatest hope in life and death is to see the face of God and to bask in his light forever. And that's why in Revelation, it says that on that day, in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, there will be no more sun because the Lord will be our light. Amen? But that, on on the other side of the coin, on the other side of the coin, that is exactly why hell is described as outer darkness. Because the curse of hell is the opposite of the blessing of heaven. Because to be sent to hell is to be cast away from God's presence where the light of his face does not shine. And here David is experienced the opposite of God's blessing. Here David is not enjoying the face of God. Here David is distressed because God has hidden his face from David. And four times David cries out, how long? Now, let me ask this question. Does David believe that the Lord has and will forget him forever? I don't think so. Because if David believed that the Lord would turn his face away from him forever, then David would not have gone to the Lord in prayer in the first place. In verse 5, we'll see that David wholeheartedly believes the Lord is going to save him. In, In fact, But in verses 1 to 2, David is choosing to cry out to God even in the midst of his pain, even in the midst of his questions. So let me tell you this, church. To come to God with your honest, brutal, raw questions is not unbelief. It is actually an act of faith where you're opening up your heart before God. How often have you gone to God with your questions? How often have you brought your sorrow before the Lord in prayer? Have you ever prayed like David does in these verses? If you haven't, you should. Because let me tell you what Christian, what, 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 let me tell you this. Let me tell you something that looks Christian, but actually isn't. Silence. People who have no hope stop praying and give God the silent treatment. And that is the ultimate form of unbelief. And so there is a way in which we can appear godly by withholding our sorrows from God. But in reality, it means that we don't trust him enough to bring our sorrows to him. But when you can trust in the Lord with your pain and your sorrow and your sadness, and when you can trust God even with your questions and your doubts, turning to God to honestly bring him your sorrows is one of the greatest and most bold steps that any believer can take. That's why when Jesus was on the cross shouting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not Jesus doubting God. He was bringing his sorrows to his heavenly father because he knew that he alone could do something about it. Jesus prayed knowing that God would not ultimately forsake him. The cross was not the end of the story. And verses 1 to 2 are not the end of David's story. Because thankfully, to honestly bring your sorrows to God is just the first step. And the next step is to confidently bring our request to God. Look with me to verses three through four. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Here we read that David has not lost faith. In fact, his faith is stronger than ever. 
Like when I read David's prayers, my prayers feel so weak. Like notice how David calls upon God with such authority that it's almost as if he's commanding God to act. In verse three, David does not say please. He boldly calls on God to consider, to answer, to light up his eyes. He makes those requests, consider, answer, give light to my eyes. I know just personally, like this church is not filled with, with movie buffs, but I just want to do a quick survey. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur. Anybody? Oh, we actually have a couple. I'm pretty impressed. Okay, so, so, so about half have seen the movie Ben-Hur. Well, if you've never seen it, it is a classic. You should watch it. It's set roughly 2,000 years ago in Israel. It's all about a Jewish prince named Judah Ben-Hur. And this guy is betrayed by a close friend. He's sent into slavery. And and there's this incredible scene where Ben-Hur is being dragged across the desert in chains with a caravan of slaves. And he's he's visibly dehydrated. He's visibly dying of thirst. And and the group stops for water in the town of Nazareth. But the Roman soldiers are angry with Ben-Hur for some reason. They say, no, he doesn't get any water. Don't let him drink. Don't let him drink. And they even take the water and, and, and the Roman soldier takes it in and then spits it on the ground. And so Ben-Hur, it just, just falls to the ground in anguish. And all that, that he can do in this moment is pray, God, help me. And then a man appears. And this man bends down to Ben-Hur as he's lying on the ground. And he pours water on his face. And he lifts up his hand. And he gives him water to drink. And as the, the viewer of this movie, we, we never see this man's face. We never hear his voice, but when Ben-Hur raises his eyes to look at the man who gave him water, his eyes light up. And if you watch the movie, you don't need to be told who that man was, because when the Lord Jesus Christ made his face to shine upon this slave, his face was lifted up and he was saved from the sleep of death. That's what David's asking for in these verses. David wants the Lord to shine his face on him again. And the stakes could not be any higher because if God does not give light to David's eyes, he's gone. He's going to die. And when David wrote this, he may have been hiding in a cave from Saul. He may have been on the run from his own son, Absalom, who was seeking to kill him to take his kingdom from him. But in verse 2, even though we don't know who David's enemy was, there are many commentators who suggests that his enemy is death itself. Because if death wins, he'll say, I have prevailed over him, like verse four talks about. Honestly, you know who David reminds me of in these verses, like the boldness with which he prays? David reminds me of a Pentecostal. Like, like, have you ever prayed with someone Pentecostal before? Like, I'm not talking praying in tongues or anything like that, but if you ever sat down to seriously pray with someone who's Pentecostal or comes from a Pentecostal background, they pray bold prayers. I think it's biblical to pray, Lord, if it be your will. Like, like Jesus, of course, prayed, Lord, if it be your will, you know, let this cup pass from me. That's a biblical prayer. But let me just be honest, sometimes we as Baptists, I feel like every other prayer ends with, Lord, if it be your will. It's like this disclaimer we add to the end of prayers because we don't really believe God is going to answer. So we said, Lord, if it be your will. So obviously it was not his will. But our Pentecostal brothers and sisters do not pray like that. They pray with the boldness and the confidence of King David here in Psalm 13. I want to pray like a Pentecostal. I want to pray like King David in Psalm 13. Like, I'm a Baptist. I'm not bashing, but I'm a lifelong Baptist. I hope to die as a Baptist. But I'm just saying, if I see the gold in other denominations, I want to lift that up, right? And the confidence we find in verses 3 to 4 
is usually only found after verses one to two. We pray differently when we're brought to moments of deep desperation, don't we? Like, don't you? It's only in those moments when we are pushed to our limits that our prayer lives are no longer boring, but it's in those moments that our prayers become desperate pleas for salvation and rescue. That's how your suffering can become a blessing. Because if you can honestly bring your sorrows to God, it's then that you'll end up confidently praying to the Lord in ways that you never have before. And these confident requests end up eclipsing their complaints. And I use that term eclipsing for a reason because in a solar eclipse, as the moon eclipses the sun, the sun does not stop existing. It's just been overshadowed. And I love this picture of an eclipse because when we bring our, 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 our sorrows to God, most of the time our problems do not disappear. When we bring our questions to God, most of the time they are not answered but they do get overshadowed by something greater, the reality of who God is. And as we make our bold requests, we, we move from why is this happening into the shadow of who is God. And in verses three through four, David's confident, bold requests eclipse his questions in verses one to two. I'll, I'll even say that I was pushed to a moment of, of desperation. Many of you know that like my heart is for church revitalization. My heart is for going to a church where, where the majority of the members are, are older, where the church is really on, not going to be there in 10 years if we're not able to reach the community. And so as, as, as Katie and I were praying about the next church where we would serve and we would go, Horkin Baptist Church was like the perfect candidate. And, and we knew that this road would be hard and it would be, it would be difficult. But, but my prayer this whole time has been Lord, you alone can do this. Like, like the Lord alone can revive a dying church. And the reason I wanted to come to a dying church is because if it is revived, then he's the one who's going to get the glory. And I'll just be honest with you. Uh, it, we're coming up on, on three years of being at this church. And I've been burning the candle at both ends. And there was a moment a few weeks ago where God just broke me. Because I was at prayer meeting. And it was a night where a lot of people were sick. The roads were bad. The weather was bad. And, and, I, and I set up. I got my lesson ready. I got my notes on the board. I'm ready for prayer meeting. And I'm the only one. Nobody shows up. And, and so the first time that happened, I, I just go in my office and I'm like, I guess I've got some things to do. And I don't pray. And I, and I, and I go home and I'm very discouraged. Next week, I set up. I'm ready for my lesson. I'm excited. I'm ready for people to show up. Once again, I'm the only one there. And it was in that moment that I decided, no, this is going to be a prayer meeting if I'm the only one here. And it was in that moment that I cried out to the Lord, how long will the Adirondacks be lost? How long will the nursery and this church remain empty? How long, Lord, until your spirit moves? And Lord broke me that night because I have been trying to revive this church in my own power, and I cannot do it. He is the one that must do it. He pushed me to that place of desperation so that I could rely on him in prayer in a way that I have not before. And it was glorious, and it was good. 
And even this morning, like, like I, th- I think there's, there's even this air. I think we all feel it of like, wow, there's a lot of gaps in the seat. There's a lot of people that are sick and there's a lot of people are missing. And we, and we feel the weight of the lostness of the Adirondacks. And we, and we feel the weight of, of where this church is going if the Lord doesn't move. But if we follow this pathway of lament, if we bring our sorrows to God, and if we come to him with the boldness of David and the boldness of Jesus and call out to the Lord and say, Lord, save, Lord, heal, Lord, restore your land and reclaim this church in this area for your glory, then he will act. But it's only if we walk the pathway of lament that it will happen. And it's so important that, that as we're taking these steps, these step one, step two, step three, if, if we stop on step one and we only bring our sorrows to God, God, then it's so easy to get stuck in our heartbreak. If we stop with our requests, it's so easy to get, to get stuck on the things that we want. And it's almost like a selfish prayer, but it, the good news is that in this pathway to lament, the last step is to faithfully bring your praises to God. Look with me to verses five through six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In verses five through six, we see that David brought his sorrows to the Lord. He was not angrily venting to God. No, in verse five, David tells us that through the whole psalm, he has been trusting in the steadfast love of Yahweh. He wasn't crying out because he doubted God's love for him. In fact, David has been crying out precisely because he knew God loved him and that God wanted to know his sorrows and he wanted to hear his questions. He knew God welcomed his grief and his pain and his sorrows. And so David has walked through the steps of lament. And now in verse five, he confidently declares, I shall rejoice in your salvation. Now, let me ask you, how often do you end your prayers by saying, Lord, I know you're going to answer my prayer. Yahweh, I'm looking forward to the day when I praise you for answering my cries. Amen. Do you pray like that? I know I don't, but I think we should. In fact, that's actually why we end our prayers by saying the word amen. Amen is a word that Jesus used often, but he never actually used it to end his prayers. Normally, when Jesus uses the word amen, it's when Jesus said, amen, amen, I say to you. Or you probably heard it in English, truly, truly, I say to you. Amen is simply a word that means this is true. When I say amen means, I want you to say this is true. Amen means this is true. So in the early church, Christians borrowed this word from Jesus and we started to end our prayers with it. So to say, this is true. And when we end our prayers with the word, amen, if we know what we're saying and if we believe what we're saying, what we're actually declaring to God is, Lord, this is true that you hear my prayers and this is true that you will answer my prayers. Somebody better say amen to that. But here's my question. Where did David get the faith to pray with the boldness that he displays in Psalm 13? Well, in verse 6, David tells us that he could sing praises to the Lord even in the midst of his trial, even as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, because God had already dealt bountifully with him in the past. 
The longer you've been walking with the Lord, the easier it is to trust him that he's going to answer your prayers because all you have to do is remember how he's already been faithful to answer your prayers in the past. That's how David knew that God would deliver him from Goliath. Like remember King Saul and all the armies of Israel as they're shaken with fear as Goliath stood ready to fight. And then here comes this little shepherd boy and he tells the king, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear and he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And even think about the Israelites, how they would have sung Psalm 13 because remember, the Psalms were the Israelites' hymnal. And the Israelites had a lot of enemies, whether it was the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Romans. And throughout their history, it would have been easy for the Israelites to sing verses 1 to 2 as their enemies stood and, and gloated over them. But as the Israelites would have sung verses 5 through 6, their thoughts surely would have gone back to the Exodus when God freed his people from being enslaved to the most powerful nation in the world. And also remember, this was not just the Israelites' hymnal, but this was also Jesus' hymnal. And so as we ask ourselves, how would Jesus have sung Psalm 13? Our minds should only go to one place, none other than the cross. Because at that cross, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He might as well have cried out verses one to two of Psalm 13. Because on the cross, as Jesus' enemies mocked him and rejoiced over him, the father hid his face from the son. Now, when I say that, I do not mean that there was a break in the Trinity. God, of course, knows all things, sees all things, is all places. Nothing can be hidden from God. But when I say that the father turned his face away from the son, I mean that at the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. And the blessing of the light of God's face was taken away. You see, in Deuteronomy, God told the Israelites, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And if you're here today, if you have ever broken one of the Ten Commandments, if you've ever broken a single rule in the Bible, then let me give you some bad news. You deserve to be cursed by God. You do not deserve the light of his face. You do not deserve to see him face to face. But here's the good news. Because God also told the Israelites, cursed is everybody who is hung on a tree. And now I hope you understand why Jesus came. He came to take our place, to be forsaken in our place, to take our curse by dying for our sins. Like, have you ever wondered why Jesus was crucified? Not in the temple where the presence of God was, but all the way outside the city walls of Jerusalem? Because when Jesus became our curse, he was sent outside of the city gates away from God's presence to suffer. Have you ever wondered why darkness covered Jesus for the three hours when he was on the cross? It is because when Jesus became our curse, God turned the lights out over Jerusalem as he turned the light of his face away from his only begotten son. The light of his face, the blessing of the Father, with, which Jesus had never not experienced in his entire existence, was withheld from the Son at the cross because at the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus could have sung every line of Psalm 
13 from beginning to end because not only did he honestly bring his sorrows to the Lord on the cross, but the Lord heard Jesus' prayer. He was delivered from death. He rose from the grave, putting to shame the Pharisees, putting to shame the Romans, putting to shame the principalities and the powers and defeating death itself. Their victory was short-lived, but when Jesus walked out of that tomb, his heart rejoiced in his salvation for the Father answered Jesus' prayers and the light of his face once again shone upon the sun. Amen, somebody. My prayer this morning was that we, as a church, would learn the language of lament so that we could honestly, biblically bring our sorrows to God. Because in Psalm 13, we found three steps on the path from heartbreak to hope, to honestly bring our sorrows to God, to confidently bring our requests to God, and to faithfully bring our praises to God. And of course, you may be, be thinking, okay, of, of course Jesus gets to pray that way. I mean, he's God. And of course, David gets to pray that. He was a king and he was a prophet and he wrote a lot of the Psalms. Of course, he gets a pass. But like, what right do I have to pray like they did? Well, let me remind you that not only were the songs the Israelites' hymnal and Jesus' hymnal, but the Psalms are our hymnal. Because in the New Testament, we too are commanded to sing the Psalms as Christians, even the Psalms of lament. So if you're wondering what that looks like and how do we do that, you're in luck. Because this morning, I have four pastoral charges. I have four ways that we can learn the language of lament so that we can honestly and biblically bring our sorrows to God. First pastoral charge, cry out for the Lord to save you. Cry out for the Lord to save you. Let me say right now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. You are so welcome here. But I must tell you what the Bible tells all of us, that, that all of us either will bear the curse we deserve for our sin or we can flee to the one who bore it for us. And today, if you repent of your sin and trust in the Son, then your sins can be forgiven. You can have everlasting life and you can dwell in the light of God's face forever in perfect harmony and peace in heaven. But only if you believe the one who was forsaken on our behalf. And Christian, this truth, this good news, this gospel is the foundation for our confidence as we approach God in prayer. Which leads me to my second pastoral charge. Get your confidence to pray from the gospel. Get your confidence to pray from the gospel. As Christians, not only may we pray with the confidence of David and Jesus, not only may we pray with that same confidence, but we are actually commanded to pray with that level of confidence. In Hebrews 4.16, we're commanded to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. What right do we have to go to God that boldly? Hebrews 4.15, one verse before, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have the right to approach God's throne with confidence because as Paul tells us in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Third pastoral charge. Pray through the Psalms, especially the Psalms of Lament. Pray through the Psalms, especially the Psalms of Lament. If you're here and you're very uncomfortable with this whole concept of bringing your questions and, and your sorrows to God, like I understand where you're coming from. 
and, and maybe you're like, I don't know where to start. I feel like I'm going to say something inappropriate. I, I feel like I'm going to sin against God. I don't want to do that. And that's a good concern. But if that's you, let me encourage you to start with Psalm 13 and let David's prayer become your prayer and pray through the Psalms. Let the Psalms be your guide on your path from heartbreak to hope. Because if we don't know how to pray, God has given us an excellent example of how we should approach him. Final pastoral charge, sing your sorrows. Sing your sorrows. Horatio Spafford was merely a lawyer and a businessman. He and his wife, Anna, and their five children lived in Chicago. And despite his financial success, his life was filled with many tears. Horatio's son died of pneumonia in 1871. And that same year, he lost most of his business in the Great Chicago Fire. His business slowly regrew, regrew, but in 1873, when the whole family planned to travel to Europe, Horatio had to stay in Chicago to deal with unexpected problems with his business. He planned to join his family in Europe just a few days later, but the boat carrying his family never made it. Four days into crossing the Atlantic, their boat collided with another steel ship. His wife, Anna, gathered their four daughters on the deck of the ship, and she knelt there and prayed that God would spare them. But within 12 minutes, the ship sank beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of its passengers, including Horatio and Anna's four daughters. A sailor spotted Anna floating, clinging to a piece of wreckage, still alive, and she survived. When she was rescued, another survivor remembered Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. When she landed in Wales, she sent a telegram to her husband, which said, saved alone, what shall I do? So Horatio Spafford went out on the next available ship to be with his wife, but he asked the captain to tell him when they would be over the place where his children went down. And when the captain alerted Horatio of that place, it was in that place as he looked on the raging ocean as the waves rolled one on top of the other that these words came to his mind, when peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I've always loved that hymn because it's not, it is great. It's not my soul is happy, my soul is fine, my soul is excellent. It is well is the perfect mixture of sorrow and contentedness that can only be found in the Lord. And I think the reason this song has been so powerful through the ages is because it's one of the few songs that we really have in the English language that is so real, so raw, so honest. And the reason it's resonated with so many believers through the years is because there is something freeing, even therapeutic, about crying out to God with the people of God about your sorrows. And that's why God gave us the Psalms, even the Psalms of Lament, because it's okay if you're not okay. Until Jesus returns, we are not going to be okay. And lament is the language that Christians are to speak and to pray and even sing as we wait for Jesus to come and wipe away every tear. Until that day, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until then, let's pray. Oh, Lord, no one taught us how to cry, but these steps of lament must be learned. And through this practice, though it's so foreign to us, so unnatural, so uncomfortable to us, we ask that you would teach us to pray like the saints in the Bible did. Teach us to pray with the boldness and the confidence and even the honesty that David prayed in Psalm 13. May the cross grant us that confidence through the blood of Jesus 
And Lord, in all of this, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all the people said, Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.